There is only one city in the entire world that will fit the biblical parameters from which the false religious empire will reign through the false prophet during this seven-year period, and it's the city of Rome. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we are in chapter 13, looking at the activity that takes place between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments. We've spent some time discussing the role Israel will play in the end times, and we've looked at the men described in these passages, including the dragon, who is the devil, and the beast, who is the Antichrist. Today, we'll spend some time recounting what we've learned so far before we proceed with the rest of the description of the Antichrist listed in verses 3 to 10 of chapter 13. Now, the events that we're studying, people will be pouring over these pages of Scripture, maybe even listening to this sermon when the coming tribulation comes, and it will have great relevance to them. But remember, all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man, the woman of God might be adequately equipped for every good work. And so for most of human history, the Revelation was written for these seven churches and by extension us. There is truth here that God has for you and I today, though it has great application in the coming days after the rapture. Now, we studied in chapter 12, if you remember, how Satan fights against God and against his people Israel by accusing both the saints who are in heaven and those who are on earth. And Jesus gives ultimately the victory. Now, very often, our adversary, Satan, works through human means, whether it's a Stalin or Hitler or some agnostic humanist. But ultimately, he has his man who is coming, who will be called the son of perdition, the man of sin. Most of us simply in the church cut to the chase. We don't call him by one of some 30 titles given him in the Scripture. We just call him the Antichrist. And the devil is a great imitator, and he will imitate like the world has never seen before at this time in human history. Now, if you remember, in the opening verses of John's gospel, the same one who wrote the book of Revelation, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, then he says, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So these two verses teach us that Jesus is a living, breathing revelation of God the Father, which is why John can then say in verse 18 of that opening chapter to his gospel, no one has seen God, a reference here to the Father. No one has seen God the Father at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. You see, you and I could not fully understand God until God put a face on Himself. And it says here that the Lord Jesus, the only begotten God, has explained Him. The word explained is the Greek word that gives us our word exegesis. A pastor is supposed to exegete the Scripture. 
eisegesis is when someone takes a text of Scripture and they read something into it, whether it's modern psychology or something that has nothing to do with what it says. And there are many personalities in our day that do that. The Joel Olsteins and a host of others that take verses out of context and they teach things, but even evangelicals do it to try to make a point. That's eisegesis. A pastor is to exegete the Scripture. He is to stay within the bounds of what God has revealed, but he is to reveal what God has said. Now, John identifies the Lord Jesus with this Hebraism, that he is in the bosom of the Father. And when it says he is in the bosom of the Father, that tells us a great deal. For Jesus did not come from the head of the Father to reveal the wisdom of God, though indeed he did reveal his wisdom. Neither does it say that he came from the foot of the Father to be a servant, though he was a servant, for the Son of Man came to serve. But Jesus came from the bosom of the Father to reveal the very heart of God, and that's precisely what he did. He is the only Son which is in the bosom of the Father. So if you want to know what God is like, John is saying, look at Christ. If you want to know what Satan is like, Look at the Antichrist. Remember that occasion when Helen Keller came into this world? Can you imagine what it was like to be her parents? She could neither see or hear. She could not see her mother's face. She could not hear her mother's voice. And her mother would literally stand over her crib and weep and say, Oh, Helen, Helen, your mother loves you. How can I help you to see that I love you? And then one day God broke through in Ann Sullivan, who was able to communicate. And for the first time, she began to understand the love of her father and her mother. God was saying over a perishing world, I love you. I care for you. And I want you to see it. And then God broke through in Christ. Why study the Antichrist? Because the Revelation says much about him. Because in studying the Antichrist, you are learning something about your enemy, Satan. And any good soldier will tell you that to fight an enemy properly, you need to know what your enemy is like. Jesus can say to Philip, he who has seen, the fa- who has seen me has seen the Father. Paul can tell the Colossians that the Lord Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The writer of the Hebrews can say that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. The same principle applies to the Antichrist. Now, it would be inaccurate to say that the Antichrist is Satan in human flesh. The incarnation can in no way be replicated. But nonetheless, it is as close as you can get. When you study the Antichrist, you really see what Satan is like. Now, we took two weeks just to study the first four verses. Today, we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. But to give us a running start into the context, I want us to begin reading in verse 1. Follow along in your Bible if you have one. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. 
And the dragon gave him power in his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain. And his fatal wound was healed, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to wage war with him? There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle, that is, those who dwell in heaven." was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword... With the sword, he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. Now, let me bring you into the context because it's been a few weeks since we've been in this text. And I understand as Peter teaches me and as Christ illustrates, repetition is the best teacher. So let's refresh where we are in this chapter. If you remember in chapters 12 and 13, the narrative drastically changes And you know you're being introduced to a new section in the Revelation. Specifically, seven different personages are introduced to us. Here they are. First, we studied the woman who's identified as the one, the people who give us the Messiah, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. Then we studied the dragon who's identified for us as the devil. The male child, that's the Messiah, that's Christ, the Lord Jesus. Michael, who's termed the archangel. The rest of her children, that was saved Israel. Uh, Then the beast out of the sea, the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, the false prophet. Seven different personages given to us either directly or symbolically. We, o- we studied in the opening verse of the Revelation that this book was communicated in the margin of the NASB. It says it was signified. In other words, it's given to us in signs and symbols. And of course, to understand the meaning of the real people, the real situations, and the real events that are described, you have to often know what the symbol refers to. And much of the revelation is understood by looking at the Old Testament because 300 of the 404 verses are direct allusions to the Old Testament. We'll see that again this morning. Or sometimes a symbol is given, and even within a few verses or within a few paragraphs, the symbol is interpreted for us. Now, we learned in the opening verse, and the dragon stood in the sand of the seashore. Now, remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, so don't let them distract you. They're helpful and that I could say turn to chapter 13 today but they can be distracting in that they break and divide the text where God never divided it. So just keep that in mind. Look back at chapter 12, verse 17. So the dragon, who in verse 9 of the 12th chapter is identified as Satan, the devil, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children, those who didn't flee into the wilderness, who keep the commandments of God and hold the testimony of Jesus. The woman, Israel, gives us a Jew named Jesus. 
The Messiah would be a descendant of David, the prophet wrote. From David's house, the Messiah would go. If you don't like the Jewish people, you don't like Jesus, because Jesus is a Jew. And he's going to vent his final fury against those who do not take Christ's words because they either had not heard them or they did not understand them, where they fled to the wilderness for protection. And the rest of her children, because the devil's time is shortened at this point, and he knows it, he will rage full outrage against the Jewish people. And these Jewish people who are still around Israel are described as those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Listen, the greatest anti-Semite who ever lived is Satan. Why is it that this small group of people in the world, 12, 13 million, they live on a piece of property the size of Delaware, New Jersey, and yet every day they are the center of attention? Why? Because God is going to complete human history through the nation of Israel. And Satan is the greatest anti-Semite He hates the Jewish people who gave us the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and so he continually attacks the Jewish people. Yesterday I was reading about all these Jews in France who this past week were being persecuted, that they can't even walk down the street without people spitting on them. Where do you think that originates from? I'll tell you, it originates from the heart of Satan, the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air who's energizing the sons of disobedience. Now, the word communicated in Revelation 1.1, this revelation was communicated. Again, in the margin, it says signified. I like that word, signified. The first four letters of signified is S-I-G-N. And so the angel of God signified this message to John. And so when we read here of a beast coming out of the sea, we need to know what that symbol represents. Now, we've seen all the way through Revelation and in other places in the Bible, especially in Daniel, that when God speaks of a sea, he can be speaking of a literal sea, or he can be speaking of a sea figuratively, or he can take and combine both terms into a single context. So it can be used of water in the Bible, or it can be used figuratively like we do in English. We speak of a great sea of people. And so Daniel and Isaiah and the Revelation use it both literally and figuratively to describe the sea of humanity, the Gentile nations of the world, from which Daniel the prophet tells us the Antichrist will come. We are living in a time that Jesus called in the Gospel of Luke the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles began with Nebuchadnezzar, as Daniel predicted. And the Jewish people have been oppressed since the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And even though on May 14th, 1948, they became a nation and they gained their independence, all a part of a fulfilled prophecy where they would become a nation in one day, the scripture says. And God, again, is gathering them back in the land because a lot has to take place through Israel, not for the rapture, but for the second coming to happen. Nonetheless, they've been oppressed. Virtually every single year, at least 50%, some years 75% of all the resolutions made in the United Nations since Israel became a nation is against Israel. There's an oppression. 
I saw the beast coming up out of the sea. So if the Antichrist is going to come out of the Gentile nations of the world, do we have any idea over what section of the world he will come from? Yes, we do. Notice here, it's not a sea, but the sea, it's articular. And we've already seen that in the Scripture, there are four great seas. There's the Red Sea, the Galilean Sea, there's the Dead Sea, and then there's the Great Sea, what we call today the Mediterranean Sea. Further, his origin is described in verse 2. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, his mouth like the mouth of a lion, and the dragon gave him his power and throne and authority. That, by the way, is the exact imagery we studied in Daniel chapter 7. And it describes these subsequent empires ending up with the Roman Empire. Here's a map of the Roman Empire in John's day. This is the world by which, from which the Antichrist will come. Here's a modern-day map with some of the countries on it. So, um, what do we know about the origin of this man? Well, Daniel tells us, and Revelation will confirm it, especially when we come to chapters 17 and 18, that the Roman Empire will be revived, and it will be revived in ten parts. The Roman Empire never existed in ten parts. That's one of the ways you know it's futuristic when Daniel describes it, not to mention he tells us of this coalition of ten parts, ten nations, that happens at the end of time. He specifies it specifically. And out of those ten nations, an eleventh will rise, an insignificant leader from an insignificant nation who, from which the Antichrist will come. So he comes from the heartland of the old Roman Empire. And Daniel underscores that. We studied Daniel 9.26. And if you weren't here for Daniel 9, download searchthescriptures.org app at the App Store and listen to the messages on Daniel 9 if you can't listen to the whole book, because that will give you the schematic of much of what we are studying here. And of course, Daniel predicted that there would come a time in human history where the uh, Antichrist would go into the temple and commit the abomination of desolation. He not only predicts that, he predicts all these future empires, and one after another, they all came true. Now, the liberal critics in our day love to attack Daniel. They don't deny that the empires that he identifies were literally fulfilled in human history. You can't. It is so clear. The prophecies are so pre precise. But because they don't believe in a God who is supernatural and able to do great things, because they deny through evolution Genesis 1-1, they have trouble believing the rest of the Bible. And so they say, no, this happened just as it was written. But Daniel was not writing as a prophet. He was writing as a historian that Daniel was written in the second century A.D., not 600 years before Christ. Well, number one, they differ with Jesus. Jesus called him Daniel the prophet. I go with Jesus. Amen? Number two, because of the nature of the prophecies, he also gave some prophecies between the Old and the New Testament period which were also literally fulfilled. And the Dead Sea Scrolls dated the prophet Daniel prior to that period. And so their whole argument completely falls apart. 
So Daniel 9.26 speaks of the people, speaking of the Roman people, of the prince who's to come, that he will go into a rebuilt Jewish temple and commit the abomination of desolation. But first he predicts that that people will destroy the temple. And in 70 AD, that is precisely what happened. Now, let's ask a question. If indeed this coming leader is going to come from the Gentile nations, from the former Roman Empire, does that mean he's a Gentile? And the answer is no. I believe the coming Antichrist is a Jew, and let me give you four reasons. Number one, because he comes from a Gentile country doesn't make him a Gentile any more than a Jew from America would be a Gentile. In fact, as early as two centuries before Christ, 200 years before Christ, if you go to Italy, I've seen some of the Jewish graves that go back 200 years before Christ. They refer to them as the Yehudim Italicum in Hebrew, that is Jewish Italians. Now, if indeed the Antichrist comes from the former Roman Empire, and he does, it may be that he comes from the capital of the former Roman Empire. I wouldn't be dogmatic on that. But when we come to the 17th chapter, we're going to see that these uh, seven uh, heads represent both seven kings and a city built on seven hills. And we will see when we come to Revelation 17, there is only one city in the entire world that will fit the biblical parameters from which the false religious empire will reign through the false prophet during this seven-year period, and it's the city of Rome. With that said, he could be from Italy, and certainly they are an insignificant country. And by the way, I'm not against Italians. My last name is actually not Brogi, it's Brogi. And so when I go to my, my son, he was uh, meeting Anthony Scalia and, uh, at a Christmas party, two of them. And one of them went up to Justice Scalia at the time, and he said, hello, my name's Grant Brogi, Milan. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, your family's from Milan. Of course, he didn't have it right. My other son, Jeremy, went up to him. Jeremy didn't know his brother had met him. Jeremy Brogi, Florence. <laughs> well, anyway, in either case, I am Italian, at least in partial. I also have a lot of Irish blood in me, but ultimately we're all related because we're all from one blood, the Bible says. We all descend from Adam and Eve. Lay that aside, he could be an Italian Jew, but the fact that he comes from a Gentile nation doesn't disqualify him from being a Jew because there's Jews all across the planet. Secondly, he comes and he commits the abomination of desolation. A Jew would be most qualified to go into the temple because of the sacredness of the temple in the minds of the Jewish people. I doubt for a single second they'd let some Gentile go in when he commits that act. They don't know he's going to commit that act, but they would not let him in. Third, it's inconceivable that the Messiah would be a Gentile in a Jew's mind. Now, we believe Messiah has come. They're going to learn that. The Jewish people are going to learn that but it's inconceivable to any religious Jew today. You go up and you ask any religious Jew, will the coming Messiah, who they don't think has come yet, will he be a Jew or a Gentile? They'll laugh at the question. Are you kidding me? 
He's a Jew. In fact, most secular Jewish people recognize the coming Messiah will be a Jew. Why? Because that's what the Bible reveals about him. He is a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David. It's very, very specific. But in addition, we have biblical evidence to show that he is Jewish. Remember what Jesus said in John 5. It's that great chapter. You should learn it. Because if a JW or a Mormon or a Christian science or somebody else shows up at your door, you're trying to prove that Jesus claimed to be Lord. John 5 is one of the most powerful arguments. And in John 5, speaking to his Jewish people who had rejected him, he said, if I come in my Father's name and you do not receive me, which they did not, he came to his own, his own received him not, if another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. So because they rejected the good shepherd, Jesus predicted they would come and they would embrace another shepherd. Now, many of you know that unlike English, there are two words for another in Greek. There's the word heteros. We get our word heterosexual, speaking of another of a different kind. And then there's the word alos, that means another of a same kind. Jesus said, if another, he uses the word alos, shall come, another like him, another like him how, another like him, and that he will be Jewish. Now, just think your way through this. Messiah, Hebrew word for Greek word Christ, Christos. We speak of a coming anti-Messiah, or more prolifically, an antichrist, one who is coming who's against Christ. The word anti, we have been learning and we will see further as we work through the revelation, can mean against or it can mean in the place of. And both nuances are given in the New Testament to describe this coming man of sin. In one sense, he comes against Christ. He's the opposite of Christ. And so our word antonym that speaks of opposites. Jesus came with godly power. The Antichrist is coming with the devil's power. We've already seen in this chapter, he comes up out of the sea. That is, he comes up out of the sea of Gentile nations, further elucidated by verse 2 from the former Roman Empire. But we've already studied also in Revelation 11 that the uh, coming Antichrist comes up out of the abyss. Which is it? He's a real human. He comes out of the former Roman Empire, but he comes out of the abyss in the sense the abyss is that place of the most evil and hard demons are. And so there are some demons who are fearful that Jesus there in Cursey, where he dealt with the Gadarene demoniacs, that he would send them into the abyss. God is going to open up the abyss at one point, as we've already studied in the Revelation, in the power of the Antichrist will come from the abyss. He will have satanic power. So geographically, he's described as coming up out of the sea. Spiritually, in terms of his evil empowerment, he comes up out of the abyss. But not only is he the opposite of Jesus, and Jesus was kind and compassionate and loving. This man is as cruel as anyone you will ever see when his full character is displayed, especially in the second half of the seven years. To listen again to today's study from Revelation 13 entitled, One Nation Under a False God, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV33. At Search the Scriptures, we're committed to introducing people to Christ and to growing Christians in their walk with the Lord. If you can help support this ministry and this mission, call 877-787-7478. Thank you. Tomorrow we continue our look at One Nation Under a False God. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.